he wrote about her. That's the latest. I'm Tim Jones. K107 News. Talk about an exciting offer. Right now at Peter Vardy MG, the brand new MG ZX Excite comes with rear parking sensors, smartphone integration and Bluetooth connection for just £239 initial rental, then only £239 a month. That's right, just 239 a month for a brand new MG ZX Excite. Not only that, you'll also get up to seven years warranty. Visit Peter Vardy MG now to find out more. Peter Vardy! 48 months personal contract hire. Conditions apply. Shop local, promote local. Let Kirkcaldy hear about your business. Advertise here. Just email us for more details. Sales at k107.co.uk And so, another extraordinary week in UK politics with the spotlight firmly on Scotland as the Covid inquiry continues in Edinburgh. Conservative politicians have cried foul as Nicola Sturgeon confirms she's deleted her WhatsApp messages. And then the Scots Secretary Alistair Jagg tells the inquiry, yes, he's deleted his too. All of them. Sturgeon breaks down at the COVID inquiry in Edinburgh. Alistair Jack says he just doesn't believe her. And Labour demands she comes to Parliament to face questions. From Caledonia Media, I'm Charles Fletcher with Scotland's favourite political show, The Week in Holyrood. I was the First Minister when uh, the pandemic struck. There's a large part of me wishes that I hadn't been... Um, I was, and I wanted to be the best First Minister I could be during that period. It's for others to judge the extent to which I succeeded. Well, I watched that yesterday, and I, I saw that passage, and I, don't believe, I didn't believe it for a minute. I mean, I looked at, I looked at that pa- passage, and I thought back in my experiences, and I looked at her performance, and I thought she could cry from one eye if she wanted to. Like her or loathe her, be in her tent or outside, you could not ignore Nicola Sturgeon. Scotland's longest-serving First Minister, the first female First Minister, winner of eight consecutive elections. A year ago, Nicola Sturgeon was a star player on the global political stage. This week, the emotion was raw as she testified at the UK COVID inquiry that she did the best she could. You gave some previous evidence when you helpfully appeared in Module 1 about your uh, experience, ministerial experience, um, having been Health Secretary, Deputy First Minister and First Minister. And you told the inquiry um, about the fact that you had in fact had, I think in your role as Health Minister, experience of dealing with the pandemic before, uh, as you had dealt um, with Scotland's response to and position in the 2009 H1N1 swine flu crisis. Is that correct? That is correct. Um, Although Her Ladyship is still to make determinations on the matter... It was suggested by a number of witnesses in Module 2 uh, that the then Prime Minister, Mr Johnson, was the wrong Prime Minister for this crisis. Uh, did you share that view? Um, yes. I, again, I, I'm, I'm risking here going further than I should and being reprimanded for sounding political. I'm not meaning to be. I suppose I'm trying to put that into context where... 
I don't think I'm betraying any secrets here when I thought Boris Johnson was the wrong person to be Prime Minister. Full stop. Yes. Um, so I think that answer has to be seen within that context. Um, did you consider yourself against that background and your considerable ministerial experience to be precisely the right first minister for the job? No, that's not how I would have thought of it at all. Um, I was the first minister when uh, the pandemic struck. There's a large part of me wishes that I hadn't been, um, but I was. And I wanted to be the best first minister I could be during that period. It's for others to judge the extent to which I succeeded. Did you, it's undeniable that you had the previous experience of the H1N1 crisis, that's simply a fact, and that you had considerable experience in dealing with health matters, in particular as you had been Cabinet Secretary uh, for Health. Um, I'd be interested to know, Ms Sturgeon, whether in the juxtaposition between that simple state of affairs and your opinions shared by some others of Mr Johnson, that you saw a political opportunity in the fact that you were uh, well-equipped in your mind to deal with the response and he was not? No. Um, the answer I gave you a moment ago about Boris Johnson, I don't remember thinking that in the moment. It's, it, yeah, I've made the political comment about my views of Boris Johnson generally. In those early days of the pandemic, my view was, and my experience was, uh, that we were all trying our best in almost impossible circumstances. Um, to the next bit of your question, did I see an opportunity? I didn't see an opportunity of any description in COVID. I saw a threat, a risk, a catastrophe. Uh, my memories of the early part of 2020 in terms of how I was feeling and thinking and the emotions uh, that I was experiencing was at first fear um, at what might be about to unfold and confront the country um, at times uh, and I think you know you've seen snippets of perhaps you know the, the sort of human side of of being a leader and a politician in these moments at times in those early days, I, I felt overwhelmed by the scale of what we were uh, dealing with. And perhaps more than anything, I felt an overwhelming responsibility uh, to, to do the best I could. And that's so the idea that in those horrendous days, weeks, I was thinking of a political opportunity, I find. Well, it's just it wasn't true. The former First Minister has been whipped, not least by Conservative politicians, for deleting her WhatsApp messages from the pandemic. This week, Scott Secretary Alistair Jagg told the COVID inquiry he deleted his, all of them, to clear up some space on his phone. He also said he didn't believe Nicola Sturgeon's performance at the inquiry. We have heard that some of the uh, areas, some of the boundaries were perhaps blurry at times. Would you agree? Yes, I think, I think that was inevitable with the nature of public health being devolved. It's perhaps the result of uh, public health being devolved, but also the all-encompassing 
societal nature of the virus insofar as it, it, it impinged on almost every area of, uh, of our lives. Yes, the virus, I mean, the virus knew no boundaries. And within the United Kingdom, I, I was always keen that wherever possible, we were aligned. And a lot of the effort I put into was to try and have an aligned response across the UK. And as I say, you know, I, 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 there was much debate with the Scottish Government around the border, as they called it. Well, I mean, to me, and I said this many times that then, it, it's a geographical border, not a physical border, and certainly the virus didn't respect any border. So I wanted us to be aligned as much as we possibly could be, understanding that under the public health response, which is the route that we went down, the, the public health was devolved uh, to all the administrations. Before the pandemic struck, um, it would have been predictable, would it not, that a viral threat of this general nature uh, would not respect man-made boundaries like borders or uh, political constitutional settlements. Is that fair? That's very fair. What efforts were made in advance of the pandemic um, in order to try to clarify the respective areas of responsibility of the Scottish Government and the UK Government in the event that such a pandemic would hit? So I think that was an area that um, could have been uh, better prepared for. Uh, I, I, obviously, the devolution settlement happened in 1999. I, don't, I, I, I think that would be one area that hadn't been prepared for. There was, within Schedule 5 of the devolution, with the devolution settlement, there is, should I say, uh, the, the reservation of emergency powers. Uh, the Civil Contingencies Act is reserved. Health and safety is reserved across the United Kingdom. And maybe we could have used one of those to, to, to deal with the pandemic response. We didn't. We went with the devolved uh, public health uh, position. And I think, uh, I would hope, and I think it's in my recommendations in my witness statement, I would hope that we, we can uh, plan better for another such event where we have a more centralised approach to our response, which will reduce the confusion that we saw with different rules that I didn't think made much difference to the outcomes, and this, the statistics prove that, different rules for the sake of it, um, it confusing, confusing the public. I think we, we need to move away from that, have more of a centralised response, and uh, use the devolved uh, legislation for the delivery of that centralised response. And that would be a recommendation I have for the future. Do I take it from your suggestion that there were different rules for the sake of it, that that's your assessment of the Scottish Government's approach to its public health responsibilities? I've, I felt very strongly that the Scottish Government were... We would meet with them and tell them what our plans were to, you know, in terms of as we move the rules and regulations. And I felt that they absorbed the information and then worked out how they could do it, but just slightly differently. And I felt that was a political manoeuvre on their behalf. We've heard and I, I think I've said that in my witness statement as well. To characterise the way in which the UK government and Scottish government interacted during this unprecedented medical emergency as tit-for-tat or children squabbling with each other. No, I don't, I don't think that's fair, but I think... It, it, what it characterised was that we, you know, I, as, as you said at the beginning, my job is to go out and strengthen the United Kingdom and sustain the United Kingdom, and I do that every day of my working life. 
The First Minister's job, and I've said this at the dispatch box on other occasions, uh, is she, or she at the time saw her job as a leader of a nationalist government to um, break up the United Kingdom. That's what the Scottish National Party exists to do. And so it was inevitable that there would be tensions, and there, and, and there always are in government. De devolution works very well, but it works very well when governments want to work together. When one government wants to destroy the United Kingdom and destroy devolution, then there are tensions. And so those tensions existed before the pandemic, during the pandemic, and they exist now today. You'll be fully aware, no doubt, Mr Jack, that the First Minister, the former First Minister of Scotland, in what might well be described as an emotional passage of her evidence, described yesterday that despite the fact that she believed in Scottish independence to her very core, she was, in this medical emergency, able to put aside those political convictions and prioritise the health and safety of the people of Scotland. Did your pre-existing assumption about her political convictions result in you failing to be able to believe that she could do that? I didn't. Well, I watched that yesterday, and I, I saw that passage, and I don't believe. I didn't believe it for a minute. I mean, I looked at I looked at that pa passage, and I thought back in my experiences, and I looked at her performance, and I thought she could cry from one eye if she wanted to. Also this week, former Health Secretary Jean Freeman says she has regrets, but no apology. Former Deputy First Minister John Swinney confirms he wiped his messages. Former Finance Secretary Kate Forbes told the inquiry she kept her messages, all of them, and claimed she was excluded from key meetings. Nicola Sturgeon says she was invited, but didn't show. The UK Covid inquiry has now wrapped up in Scotland, but will continue in London. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher. Thanks for your company. Time to go into the chamber here at the Scottish Parliament for questions to the First Minister. Not surprisingly, Covid dominates leaders' questions. We'll hear from Alex Cole-Hamilton for the Lib Dems, Anas Sarwar for Labour and first Douglas Ross for the Scottish Conservative and Unionist Party. Uh, an email revealed yesterday at the UK Covid inquiry included... Really, SNP members are groaning because we're asking about the COVID inquiry. So let me start again. Thank you, Presiding Officer. An email revealed yesterday by the UK COVID inquiry included senior SNP government figures discussing the travel ban to Spain in July 2020. The email says, I am extremely concerned about this. It won't matter how much ministers might justify it on health grounds, the Spanish government will conclude it is entirely political. They won't forget. There is a real possibility they will never approve EU membership for an independent Scotland as a result. This wasn't a low-level consideration. The people included in this discussion were Nicola Sturgeon, absent again from Parliament. John Swinney, absent again from Parliament. Jean Freeman and... Hamza Youssef. So, First Minister, why was independence even considered in a decision about public health? First Minister. Of course, uh, it wasn't, uh, Presiding Officer. And Douglas Ross, when he says he, this email came from a senior SNP official, it was from a Scottish Government 
civil servant, not from John Swinney, nor Nicola Sturgeon, nor from uh, myself, or indeed from Jean Freeman, to suggest the decision around Spain was made for any other reason than epidemio uh, epidemiology, uh, I'm afraid, is an absolute fantasy. And even if we accepted Douglas Ross's uh, example or Douglas Ross's framing of the situation, that we were looking at this through a constitutional lens and attempting to curry favour with Spain, then surely then we would have put them on the exempt list. We didn't put them on the exempt list is the exact point. And why did we not do that? Because let's look at the epidemiology at that point. That Scotland did not include Spain on the exempt list like England and Wales did. Why? Because their point of prevalence at that time was 0.33. That was four times higher than the point of prevalence in Scotland. So that was, in fact, Spain was the only country at that point proposed for the exempt list that had significantly higher prevalence uh, for uh, higher prevalence than uh, Scotland did at the time. When I look at the evidence uh, and the, the advice from the chief medical officer at the time. He expressed concern about the importation risks. So ministers concluded that they should not add Spain to the list of exempted countries due to our lower prevalence and the fact that Spain had four times higher prevalence, presiding officer. So Douglas Ross can do his best to spin. He can do his best to throw insults. He can do his best First to try to malign, uh, to malign uh, and misrepresent facts and malign not just ministers, but civil servants. But I believe the people of Scotland know, well, for all of the challenges that we had during the pandemic, that the Scottish Government always, always prioritised protecting the public from the harms of COVID. I don't think Douglas Ross can say the same of his party in the UK Government. Douglas Ross. Thank you. Amid pretty stiff competition, that might be the most bizarre answer I've ever heard from Hamza Youssef. He's saying it's fact. So here is a fact. The day after Hamza Youssef received that email speaking about political concerns that there might be with the Spanish government allowing an independent Scotland into the EU, he stood up and announced that they were uh, introducing a corridor, travel corridor, with Spain. The very next day, they opened up travel to Spain and five days later, they had to close it down again because uh, COVID cases were rocketing. That's a fact and we know it because Hamza Youssef told us. And it's black and white in evidence to the inquiry that they were thinking about independence instead of focusing purely on public health. Now, what we've not seen is any evidence of Hamza Youssef's response to that email and Nicola Sturgeon's messages have all gone from that time because she deleted them. The former SNP leader destroyed all of her WhatsApp messages despite knowing that a do not destroy order was in place. Despite promising grieving families she would be transparent. Despite assuring journalists that all her messages would be handed to the inquiry. She told the press unequivocally, yes, her messages would be provided. So why did Nicola Sturgeon say yes when she actually meant no? First Minister. First of all, can I say once again, effective from 10th of July 2020, Spain was not included on the first exempt countries list due to the higher prevalence it had higher, four times higher than it had uh, in relation to uh, Scotland. Let me just say in relation to WhatsApp messages, uh, Douglas Ross has thrown all sorts of uh, incendiary accusations the way particularly of Nicola Sturgeon for not retaining 
WhatsApp messages. He's demanded investigations uh, and reviews. But not only did his boss, the Prime Minister, not retain uh, his messages, he actually took the inquiry to court and lost. But just over the last hour, we've heard from Alistair Jack, again, uh, Douglas Ross's boss when he was in the Scotland office. And what did Alistair Jack say about his WhatsApp messages? He was asked, uh, did he delete his WhatsApp messages? And here's what Alistair Jack said. Uh, and uh, it, well, he says, I, I did uh, delete them, and he deleted them because he wanted to free up storage capacity on his phone. Uh, when he was asked if there was any government business on these WhatsApps, he said, and I will quote him directly, I didn't think anything of it. When he was asked if he considered the needs of the public Mr. inquiry, Sarwar. here's what he said, and I will quote directly, no, I didn't. I was quite keen for my phone to start working again, is what he said, presiding officer. So it is astonishing that Douglas Ross demands investigations and reviews in relation to Nicola Sturgeon for not retaining her WhatsApps. But his boss, his colleague, who deletes his WhatsApps, didn't even think about the inquiry. Well, that's perfectly fine. Well, there's one word for that, presiding officer, and it's hypocrisy, and the people of Scotland can see right through Douglas Ross. Douglas Ross. It is not perfectly fine. Alistair Jack was wrong to delete his WhatsApp messages. Yep. He has apologised and he regrets it. Hamza Youssef can't step out of the shadow of his disgraced predecessor and say the same. And of course, Nicola Sturgeon has not apologised. She has not apologised for doing it. She has said she was right because she was following government policy. That's a massive difference, First Minister. But, but I can't let the First Minister's confusion over this travel ban with Spain pass. He's just saying that uh, they kept in place the restrictions with Spain. On the 20th of July, the day after that email was sent, Hamza Youssef said, and I quote, we are able to lift the requirement for those travelling from Spain. Five days later, he says the decision to exempt Spain earlier this week was taken when the data showed there was an improvement. The latest data has given us cause for concern to overturn that decision. So he definitely made a decision Ross, on the back of that Mr. email. Ross. Can I just ask the front bench to please resist any temptation to contribute, Mr Ross? Well, I, I think they're trying to uh, come up with a story here because what the First Minister has said so far does not match what he did in practice uh, in 2020. But we know that the deleted WhatsApp messages were covering up major decisions from this SNP government. We know that because of the messages we have been able to see. Hamza Youssef, when he was then Health Secretary in charge of the NHS, joked with the National Clinical Director, Jason Leach. They laughed about false claims that children were hospitalised because of COVID. And in one revealing exchange, Hamza Youssef said this, I'm winging it and we'll get found out sooner or later. First Minister, at what point do you think you were finally found out? First Minister. Presiding officer, let's uh, again uh, look at the facts. Where Douglas Ross uh, is right, of course, there was... Uh, Spain initially exempt, not exempt uh, from a travel corridor and then put on a travel corridor. Why were they? Because we have the data that the UK government presented by the London First School Minister, of Hygiene. First Minister, do you know we have so many members who want to put questions to the First Minister. That would be more likely if we could get on with our session and if I don't have to keep asking front benches to resist the temptation to contribute when they shouldn't be. First Minister. Well, they don't want to listen to the facts and the facts are this. 
that uh, Douglas Ross, of course, said in his own response that the situation improved in Spain. And that is correct. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine showed a marked improvement in the position in Spain, with point prevalence going down to 0.015%. And that is the reason, of course, why they were then put on the exempt list. When the situation worsened, it's just a matter of days later, actually, worsened considerably, all of the UK nations decided to take them off that exempt list. So again, we made the decisions for purely epidemiological reasons. And when it comes to the UK uh, government uh, and uh, the messages that we have seen, can I remind Douglas Ross of what we've seen from the UK government and the messages that have been revealed? He had a Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, that Douglas Ross not only backed to the very end, invited to his party conference. Boris Johnson, who allegedly, according to the evidence we've heard, said, let the bodies pile up high. When discussing long COVID, he called it, and forgive me, presiding officer, for the language, bollocks. We had a Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, who partied in number 10 while loved ones missed the funerals of their relatives. So yes, we could have done better when it came to the retention of informal messages. But when it comes to steering this country through some of its darkest days, I'm very pleased we had Nicola Sturgeon in charge here in the Scottish Government, as opposed to Boris Johnson. I would remind all members of the need for courtesy and... Members, I would be grateful if you could desist for a moment. Just let's remind one another of the need for courtesy and respect in this chamber, and that applies to using quotations um, to use words that might otherwise be regarded as unparliamentary. I'm also very conscious, as I've said, of the numbers who wish to put questions today, and I would be grateful for more concise questions and responses. And I call Douglas Ross. Even after yesterday's evidence from the former First Minister, the words we've heard from the COVID-bereaved Hamza Youssef still backs her to the hilt. And that tells you everything you need to know about this First Minister, who is simply the continuity candidate for Team Sturgeon. But as Health Secretary during the pandemic, he joked about not knowing what he was doing. When he sent that message, by that stage, 10,000 people in Scotland had already lost their lives from COVID. But he wasn't the only one that's been found out. Nicola Sturgeon destroyed evidence on an industrial scale. The SNP government considered independence for key decisions. They did things for purely political reasons. They broke promises to grieving families and the public who sacrificed so much. Hamza Youssef was winging it, but hasn't the whole SNP government been found out? First Minister. Officer, I go back to the point that I've made several times in these exchanges over the weeks, that I absolutely accept wholeheartedly that a retention policy and informal communications clearly could have and should have been better. That's why, of course, we've commissioned, I've commissioned that externally-led review. But on the big calls, many of the decisions that we made helped to save lives. If you look at some of the evidence that's been presented to the COVID inquiry, if you look at the evidence from Professor Sir Ian Diamond, and Jackie Bailey shouting, she may want to listen actually to the evidence by Professor Sir Ian Diamond. He's the Chief Executive of the UK Stats Authority and UK National Statistician. He gave details of age standardised mortality rates per 100,000 right across the four nations. This is his uh, data, not my. Uh, data. And that analysis shows that uh, in Scotland, of course, we had the lowest uh, level of deaths per 
100,000 according to the ASMR data. Now, every single one of those lives lost is undoubtedly a tragedy. In fact, many of my colleagues on these benches mm -hmm. lost a loved one uh, to uh, COVID. Mm -hmm. But on those calls, the decisions we made have helped to save lives. Let's look at what the World Health Organization said. And again, not my data, the World Health Organization's uh, data. They estimated that 22,138,000 lives in Scotland were saved as a direct result of the COVID-19 vaccination programme. So I accept fully that on, when it comes to informal communications, we could have and should have done better. There are also other decisions which, of course, uh, we look at uh, and we think we could have perhaps moved quicker or moved earlier or done things uh, differently. So while political opponents may well try to rewrite history and engage in, frankly, uh, smears, uh, insults Briefly, please, uh, First Minister. Uh, government ministers and civil servants, yeah. I can stand up here and say that I know that every single day of that pandemic, Nicola Sturgeon, the rest of us in the Scottish Government, civil servants included, worked for one reason and one reason only, to protect the people of Scotland from the harms of COVID. Politics change, but never stop. It affects everything we do. I'm Charles Fletcher with The Week in Hollywood. Join me here for coverage of the Scottish, UK and European parliaments. It's a crucial election year where you once again have a choice. Who's in, who's out, the ups, the downs. Join me, Charles Fletcher, bringing Holyrood home. You're listening to The Week in Holyrood with Charles Fletcher and still ahead in this half hour. Backbench questions to the First Minister and the Prime Minister on his weekly fast. Now to Anas Sarwar, leader of the Labour Party, which this week saw its lead over the SNP grow farther. Presiding officer, this is what we've learned after three weeks of the COVID inquiry in Scotland. The most senior ministers and officials knowingly deleted evidence to how they operated during the pandemic. They subverted the COVID inquiry and broke freedom of information laws. They plotted how to maximise their own political advantage while thousands of Scots fought for their lives. It is a betrayal of the trust the people of Scotland put into this SNP government. Nicola Sturgeon didn't tell the truth to the public and Hamza Youssef seems to have misled this parliament in an attempt to defend her. And now the SNP deputy leader is supporting attacks on the inquiry itself. Why is protecting the SNP more important to Hamza Youssef than getting to the truth? First Minister. It's simply a complete and utter mischaracterisation of what we have heard. Uh, at every occasion uh, that I have had exchanges on this issue, I first of all uh, once again acknowledged uh, the impact of the decisions that we made around informal communications on the Scottish COVID bereaved. I do that again, and I apologise once again, unreservedly, as I did in the inquiry and to them directly, to those who are representing the Scottish COVID bereaved for our mishandling in relation to the informal uh, communications. We could have and should have done better. But I go back to the point that I just made uh, when, uh, to, to Douglas Ross, and I repeat it again to Anna Sarwar. Yes, we should have done better on retention policy of informal communications. But in the course of this pandemic, when it came to the important decisions that helped to save lives, I believe we took, first of all, the decisions for the right reason. And I think we can evidence that very clearly, that the harms and the protecting people from harms uh, and the people of Scotland from harm was the number one overriding priority. But through the actions that we took when it came to uh, one measure, and I 
conclude it is uh, only and accept it's only one measure. The age standardised mortality rates per 100,000 across the four UK nations. Scotland had 124.9 per 100,000. That was different to, to England, 145 per 100,000. Wales, 144 per 100,000. The UK average, 143 per uh, 100,000. Uh, that is not to diminish the number of lives that continue to be lost to COVID to this very day. And our, the decisions that we took, of course, also ensured that when it came to the booster vaccination, it was one of the fastest booster vaccination programmes in the world at one point, certainly the fastest uh, in the UK by quite some distance too. So yes, we could have and should have done better. I accept fully on message uh, retention. I, of course, handed over the messages uh, that I had in question for them, about them for almost three hours. But on the big calls that help to save lives, I believe we can evidence, and we've seen the evidence, that not only did we do it for the right reason, but our, our interventions help to save lives here in Scotland. Anna Sarwar. Presiding officer, ministers and officials knowingly deleted evidence for the COVID inquiry, and the answer to this betrayal of the Scottish people, a review into how the Scottish Government records information. In 2020, when we had the Salmon inquiry, and there were accusations of a cover-up, what did they do? Promise a review. In 2022, when we had investigations into the ferry scandal and there were accusations of a cover-up, what did they do? Promise a review. And now we have the industrial-scale deletion of evidence for the COVID inquiry. And what's this First Minister's answer? A review. They simply don't get it. Pamela Thomas, who lost her brother during the pandemic, said this yesterday. I don't think they're capable of actually telling the truth or being transparent. Pamela's right, isn't she? First Minister. I, I uh, want to, of course, uh, express my uh, condolence to every single member uh, of the country who lost a loved one through COVID. Pamela, uh, of course, included. And I make this point uh, again to Anna Sawar, that all of us, uh, including, of course, members of this government, also lost, lost loved ones uh, to COVID. And ministerial colleagues uh, who have relatives who continue to suffer the long-term effects uh, of COVID. I have colleagues... Uh, who had to, of course, restrict the numbers who could attend the funeral of a loved one. Many of us, myself included, had children who were impacted because of the closure of schools because of COVID. And I say that uh, not because I'm trying to garner any sympathy uh, from Anasawa or anybody else. I say that because we were all in this uh, together. We were not detached somehow from the impacts or the effects uh, of uh, the pandemic. And that's why every decision we made was made with one overarching priority in mind how to protect as many people as we could from the harm of COVID. Do I think we got every decision right? No, I don't. I don't think any government in the world, any government leader in the world, can put their hand in their heart and say they got every single decision right. What I can say is we did it for the right reasons. And on the big decisions that were crucial to saving lives, I believe on many of them, we got them right. Some, of course, will not have got right. And I promise those who have been bereaved by COVID, the families of those who have been bereaved by COVID, that not only will we continue to cooperate with both inquiries, but we promise to learn the lessons of those inquiries too. Anna Sarwar. The COVID believe families don't believe the First Minister when he gives those reassurances. The COVID inquiry is about learning the lessons so this can never happen again. But they have been obstructed by this government with evidence supplied late or not at all. The decisions the inquiry is investigating still weigh on the people across this country. Why were COVID positive patients sent into care homes? Why was inadequate PPE being supplied to care workers and leaving people exposed? What impact did lockdowns have on our young people 
who missed out on years of education. Three years ago, in an election during the pandemic, many people in Scotland voted for his party because they thought Nicola Sturgeon did the best she, they, she could. They trusted her when she said this parliament would be about COVID recovery. Now those same people have had their trust broken by this government and they're appalled at the cover-up. First Minister, isn't it true? It's not just the messages that have disappeared. So has the trust in this SNP government. First Minister. I, I, I tend to uh, leave the verdict of trust to the, the people of Scotland. Anna Sauer is right. The, one of the major factors of why uh, the SNP is back into power is because of our handling over the course of the pandemic. And that wasn't judged. That, I don't, Anna Sauer's shouting, wow, I'm saying to Anna that he's absolutely correct and one of the reasons why we're standing here. Uh, what I don't think was an issue during the 2021 elections was our retention policy, our record management policy. It was one, whether or not we got the calls right in relation to the vaccination programme. It's whether, of course, we did the right thing in terms of introducing non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions. Anna Sauer talks about, in, in his words, an industrial scale deletion. We handed over 28,000 WhatsApp messages and 19,000 uh, documents. Uh, Anna Sauer is right to ask questions about care homes, around PPE, about lockdown and its impacts. These are exactly the questions the inquiry is examining. And this suggestion from Anna Sauer that somehow uh, we're not being transparent, can I remind Anna Sauer that not only are we cooperating with a UK inquiry, we're the only nation in the UK to specifically establish an inquiry in our country. And we'll also be cooperating with that Scottish inquiry too. Nicola Sturgeon, over 250 media briefings, ministers in this government attended this parliament, not on dozens of occasions, but hundreds of occasions explaining the reason why we took decisions. And, President Officer, I go back to the very central point here. We didn't get everything uh, right, and certainly not in relation to retention of messages. What we did get right and what we did do is the intention behind our decisions was to protect people from harm. And what we did, according to the World Health Organisations, through the interventions we took, helped to save over 23,000 people's lives. Those are 23,000 people that would not be here if it was not for vaccinations, if it was not for the non-pharmaceutical interventions and the decisions that this government took. And I make no apologies for that. And the last of the leaders' questions in this session is from Alex Cole Hamilton for the Lib Dems. Presiding officer, we did hear a striking testimony from the former First Minister at the inquiry yesterday about a personal phone on which she retained WhatsApp messages for the Salmond inquiry, but deleted them for every aspect of the pandemic, forever denying the bereaved families an insight into the mind of the person who held all of the power. About hospitality rules, seemingly made up at random, sending some businesses to the wall, unanswered questions about care homes, about school closures, and a secret central committee in charge, it seems, of everything, about which the finance secretary knew nothing and of which there are no minutes. A government within a government. Humza Yusuf saw all of this and yet did nothing. So why is he now standing in the way of a ministerial code investigation into gold command record keeping, something only he can instruct? And does he agree that Nicola Sturgeon ha now has a duty to come back to this chamber, this chamber he says she addressed hundreds of times and once more finally explain herself? First Minister. Can I say, uh, of course, Nicola Sturgeon gave hours of testimony and evidence uh, and, and, and under oath, of course, uh, and was questioned extensively. It will be for now the inquiry uh, to make its judgment and we respect the inquiry and, of course, uh, hope that others will respect the inquiry and give it the time 
uh, and space it needs uh, to make its judgment. I'm not sure what uh, Anna Sauer and others are shouting at. I'm simply saying the inquiry should be uh, respected. So can I say that Nicola Sturgeon or this government got every decision right? Uh, First Minister, sorry. I'm actually being distracted by a conversation that is going across or going on across the aisles. Can I ask members to refrain from such contributions while we're trying to hear the First Minister? Well, I think the opposition should try to respect the inquiry, and that is the point uh, I am making. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt, as I've already said before, that our overarching, overriding priority was always to protect the people of Scotland uh, from uh, COVID uh, harm. And Nicola Sturgeon's leadership is in stark contrast to leadership we saw in other parts of the United uh, Kingdom. And she may not have got every decision right. This government may not have got every decision right. I accept that fully. But it's for, it's for the inquiry uh, to examine and to explore that issue. On Gold Command uh, meeting minutes uh, that Alex Cole Hamilton has asked me about, uh, yes, uh, the government is urgently uh, examining, exploring, and will hand over to the inquiry any notes that we have uh, on Gold Command minutes and meetings. To London and the House of Commons, SNP Westminster leader... Stephen Flynn. Mr Speaker, when the Tories scrapped the cap on bankers' bonuses in the autumn during a cost-of-living crisis, the Labour Party rightly opposed it. Yet here we are, just three months later, and the Labour Party support scrapping the cap on bankers' bonuses. Shameful. But is the Prime Minister comforted by the fact that he's now no longer alone in this House on being completely out of touch with public opinion. Well, Mr Speaker, as I said at the time, we supported the decision of the independent regulator because this was the right thing for financial stability. But that, Mr Speaker, is because on this side of the House we have a set of convictions and we have a plan and we stick to it. But he's absolutely right to point out the flip-flopping and U-turning and no convictions of the party opposite. Of course, Mr Speaker, scrapping the cap on bankers' bonuses was only made possible due to Brexit. So what the Westminster parties are now telling the public is that it's, it's OK for bankers to have unlimited Brexit bonuses, yep. but for the yep. public sitting at home struggling to feed their families, they have to suck up and deal with the additional food price costs as a result of Brexit red tape. Yeah. That is the cost and that is the reality of broken Brexit Britain. Yeah, yeah. Isn't it the case that the great achievement of this Tory government is getting the Labour Party to agree to that bleak future? Yeah. Yeah. Right, Mr Speaker, we're actually delivering benefits for people across Scotland, not just least in new free trade deals that are opening up markets for Scottish exporters, free ports that are attracting jobs and investment, the Brexit pubs guarantee, cutting the cost of a pint in, uh, in Scottish pubs. But when he talks about the cost of living, Mr Speaker, the thing that he could do most to help is make sure that Scotland isn't the highest tax part of the United Kingdom. Not, and it's not just for high earners, Mr Speaker. Everybody earning £28,500 or more is paying more tax in Scotland than they would in England, thanks to the SNP. Now, the Prime Minister may sound fit and healthy, but I wonder if he's hungry. I only ask because friends of the PM in Westminster have revealed he has a habit of fasting from Sunday night until Tuesday. This from Sky News. Black tea, black coffee... And water are the only things the Prime Minister consumes for 36 hours of his week. 
Rishi Sunak's habit of fasting is already known, but the duration certainly isn't. The Sunday Times revealing he doesn't eat anything from 5 p.m. on a Sunday to 5 a.m. on a Tuesday. A nod to his Hindu religion, he goes for extended periods of time without eating. The diet is used by some to lose weight, and its supporters say it has a raft of health benefits. But can people go without food? I've come to this food market to find out. Could you make a big decision on an empty stomach? Uh, I, it wouldn't be a smart decision on an empty stomach, uh, that's for sure. When I'm fasted, I'm, I've got a lot more kind of a clearer mind, a lot more mental clarity. The only time I think I've ever fasted is when I've had a terrible hangover. I did it for quite a while, but I think it, was much, uh, it wasn't much fun for people around me because I was hangry a lot of the time. <laughs> hangry or not, is this an insight into the PM on an empty stomach? This, the response to a Sky News correspondent last Monday. Will Jeremy Hunt be the Chancellor at the time of the election? Yeah, yes, and I've said that multiple times before. That's not new information. But is being discovered are the potential benefits of fasting for some, including on the metabolism. It might have some benefit for the way the biological pathways work with regulating them and possibly making them work better. But comparing it to somebody who's on a really good pattern of eating, there's going to be very little difference in the long term. For people that have turned up here, not everyone's keen on missing out. <laughs> when it comes to running the country, the Prime Minister might have the answers, but on this, it's probably best to ask a doctor. Amelia Harper, Sky News. Now back to the chamber here at Holyrood as we begin backbench questions. In the chair is presiding officer Alison Johnston. Question number six, Jackie Bailey. To ask the First Minister when the Scottish Government expects the remainder of the National Treatment Centres to be opened in light of reports that NHS capital infrastructure projects have been paused. First Minister. The next two National Treatment Centres, NTC uh, Forth Valley and also Phase 2 of the Golden Jubilee, they're due to open uh, in the coming months, providing additional orthopaedic, endo endoscopy and general surgery capacity. Our ability to fund capital projects has, of course, been detrimentally impacted and affected by twin challenges of unprecedented levels of inflation caused in some part uh, by Brexit and disastrous UK government uh, decisions, but also, of course, one of those disastrous UK government decisions being the cut in our capital budget. So our infrastructure investment plan identified priority health capital projects, including national treatment centres for funding within that period. As a result of the almost 10% cut in our capital budget from the UK government, a revised pipeline of infrastructure investment will be published in the spring of this year. All due consideration will be given to what projects can be included and on what timescales, and of course that would include uh, national treatment centres too. Jackie Bailey. Can I thank the First Minister for his response? But he knows that national treatment centres are key to the SNP's NHS recovery plan. We now learn that these promises to patients and staff are in Tatters, treatment centres in Ayrshire and Arran, Lanarkshire, Lothian, Grampian and Tayside, all delayed and at risk of cancellation. But these treatment centres aren't the only NHS capital infrastructure projects put at risk. Aberdeen Bed Family Hospital and Anchor Centre, delayed. Institute of Neurosciences in Glasgow, delayed. Monklands Replacement Project in Lanarkshire, delayed. Edinburgh Cancer Centre, the Eye Pavilion, delayed. Caithness, Ragmore, the Belford, delayed. Health Centres in Kincardine, Loggelly and East Calder, cancelled. 
Barra Community Campus cancelled. Presiding officer, I could go on, but can I ask the First Minister, with almost one in six Scots on waiting lists, how is he going to end their suffering when these developments were so central to his plan? First Minister. Presiding uh, officer, as always, uh, Jackie Bailey will come to this chamber ignoring the fiscal reality and effectively act as a human shield for the Conservatives who are cutting our capital budget by 10%. The fact that Jackie Bailey thinks a 10% cut can be imposed upon us with no consequences shatters any credibility she has on this issue, presiding officer. We have, of course, made, cut, we have, of course, made a dent uh, in, uh, to improve, in, into waiting uh, times in terms of improvements that we are looking to make. So new, when it comes to activity in the NHS, new outpatient activity, activity was up on the last quarter and up 2.3% uh, on Q3 last year. Over the last 12 months to September 23, activity was almost uh, 1.24, was up uh, almost uh, 1.24 uh, million. And that's 2.5% 2, that's 2 more than the previous uh, 12 months. And when I look at inpatient day case activity for Q3, that was at its highest since the start of the pandemic. So we are uh, doing what we can, notwithstanding the financial constraints and the cuts we're receiving from the UK government. So we'll continue to invest in that capacity. Uh, and I should say to Jackie Bailey, of course, it would be very helpful if Jackie Bailey could use any influence she has with her UK Labour colleagues who have thus far refused to confirm that they will reverse that capital cut, yeah. presiding officer. Miles Briggs. Thank you, presiding officer. La last year, 59,240 patients attended the Princess Alexandra Eye Pavilion. For a patient in Edinburgh or the borders with a detached retina, the need for urgent emergency surgery is critical. The Health Secretary has suggested that if the Edinburgh Eye Pavilion is not replaced, then more surgery will be centralised to the Golden Jubilee National Hospital in Glasgow. Can I ask the First Minister if he thinks it would be acceptable for eye surgery to be centralised to Glasgow? And will he agree to meet with Lothian MSPs urgently uh, to discuss these concerns and look towards where ministers can change their mind and commit to a new replacement eye hospital? First Minister. Can I say to, to Miles Briggs, of course, uh, the clue is in the name. They are national treatment centres that we are building. So where they can have offer assistance right across the country, they should be utilised uh, in uh, that way. And we know that, of course, patients are, if necessary, uh, willing to travel. But our commitment to the eye pavilion uh, remains. And that's why we'll bring forward, of course, detail on what we can take forward uh, in regards to our investment uh, plans. But of course, I'm uh, more than happy to assure uh, that the Cabinet Secretary for Health meets uh, with Miles Briggs. What would be more helpful for Miles Briggs to do is demand that his UK government Conservative colleagues reverse their 10% cut to our capital budget. budget. They could do that in the spring budget yeah. next month. Uh, yeah. Let's see if, they, let's see yeah. if Miles Briggs yeah. and the Scottish Conservatives who come to this chamber demanding money be spent on capital yeah. projects have any influence. Somehow, presiding officer, I think not. Yeah. Kate Forbes. Thank you. Thank you, Presiding Officer. Plans for uh, a new Belford Hospital have made great progress in recent years with Scottish Government support, and it's deeply unfortunate that the 10% UK Government cut to capital has postponed the actual build. But can the First Minister commit to enabling the design process to progress so that it is shovel-ready when capital does become available to allow the uh, start of the actual build? First Minister. So we are absolutely uh, engaged on that uh, very issue at the moment. I think uh, the suggestion from Kate Forbes uh, is a sensible approach forward and we will certainly seek uh, to do that. I think it is essential that NHS boards continue to plan on how they will improve and reform services and we remain committed to absolutely supporting boards 
uh, in uh, that uh, process. But this, of course, goes back to the point that there are many uh, capital projects right across the country that are under threat, not because uh, of anything that this government has done, but because of the disastrous mismanagement of the economy from the UK government and a 10% capital cut, which is not just going to impact on health projects, but on capital projects right across the country. We appeal once again to the UK government to use the spring budget next month to reverse that devastating cut to allow these important health capital projects to go ahead. Move to constituency general supplementaries and I call Finlay Carson. Uh, to ask the First Minister if he will join with me in welcoming the very positive progress that has been made in negotiations which are likely to see the restoration of the Northern Ireland Assembly at Stormont and also welcome the huge job and investment boost which could be delivered as part of the proposed investment zone extending to Sunrar and Cairn Ryan in my constituency, which is the main point of entry for Northern Ireland goods going to Great Britain along the A75 and the A77. First Minister. I, I absolutely uh, welcome the restoration, of, I hope the restoration of power sharing in uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, the people of Northern Ireland have had uh, for too long to have to put up uh, with, without an elected uh, government uh, in place. So this is good news. Uh, for uh, the people of Northern Ireland, and we welcome it absolutely wholeheartedly. I've been to a number of British Irish councils uh, in, over the years in, in my time as First Minister, uh, and in the last uh, couple that I've been uh, as First Minister, uh, the absence uh, of, uh, the Northern I uh, of, of any elected members from Northern Ireland uh, has been uh, noted, uh, and, has, uh, and their presence uh, has been uh, missed. So I think it's incredibly important as part of the Good Friday Agreement uh, that we have power sharing. Uh, restored. It, it would be fair to say that we weren't given any advance sight uh, of the command paper that was published by the UK government uh, yesterday. There was no uh, meaningful engagement uh, by, uh, the Western government, uh, by the Westminster government. Um, the UK government appears to unilaterally have decided that there will be no border control post uh, at Cairn Ryan. It's not a decision uh, that they have consulted us on. I also note that there was a £3.3 billion package yeah. offered, to the Secretary of State, offered by the Secretary of State to address public spending and for pay pressures in Northern Ireland, which I have to say, again, is welcome. These pressures do exist in Scotland and I suspect they exist in yeah. Wales too. So I know that the Deputy First Minister has raised with the Chief Secretary to the and Treasury, the uh, as, did the Welsh, uh, as did her Welsh counterpart, that the devolved government should be treated fairly in line with the Barnet formula. Yeah. Paul O'Kane. Uh, thank you, Presiding Officer. Mark Scott was murdered in 1995 as he walked through Brigton on his way back from a Celtic game. The murder was a brutal, unprovoked sectarian attack. But from this tragic murder came hope in the form of the Mark Scott Leadership for Life Award, which is now delivered by the Outward Bound Trust and brings young people together to share experiences and reduce racism, sectarianism and intolerance. The Scottish Government has provided core funding since 2012, uh, 2012 which has allowed the awards to leverage other funding in from alternative sources. That amount stands at £75,000, and the Trust have been told that it will be removed from next year. Surely the First Minister agrees with me that this life-changing award for young people that tackles sectarianism in the best way I can think of cannot be allowed to fail due to government cuts. And given that I'm meeting with the Trust today, will he engage with me to find a solution to reinstate the funding? First Minister. Uh, can I say to, to Paul Cain, uh, he raises a very important point indeed. I know the work that Mark... Uh, Scott Foundation uh, has done uh, over the years uh, alongside uh, the Outward Bound Trust uh, as well. I've met some of those who have taken part in the project. I think they have done incredibly well as an organisation. Uh, I think they have had a really positive impact uh, on young people as well. It's an organisation I've engaged with over uh, many, many years indeed. And I can confirm uh, to Paul O'Kane to this chamber uh, that the Mark Scott uh, uh, Foundation will uh, receive 
£75,000 uh, be built to ensure that they are funded fully uh, in order uh, to carry on the excellent work that the Leadership Award has done over many, many years. And that uh, work, of course, I think is a, is a, is a lasting legacy and testimony uh, to Mark Scott and, of course, his family too. Go Cap Stewart. Officer, this week, Liz Smith endorsed the reintroduction of backdoor tuition fees, which would deny disadvantaged students from going to university. It follows Labour leader Keir Starmer ruling out free tuition fees under a UK Labour government. Can the F uh, First Minister outline what progress the SNP Scottish Government has made in widening access, and will he reaffirm his commitment to keeping tuition fees free? First Minister. Hardly a, a surprise to hear the Conservatives heckling when we mention free education. I have to say, Presiding Officer, I was absolutely delighted Let's hear to see the, the First progress Minister. that we have made in this regard, highlighted by the Commissioner of Fair Access this week. A 45% increase in students from our most deprived communities entering university since 2013-2014. No wonder the Conservatives were groaning. They don't like it, Presiding Officer, one single bit. The Commissioner also points out that this increase has not been at the expense of other cohorts <coughs> of Scottish students, with increases in home students right across the board. So unlike Labour and the Conservatives, we are absolutely committed to the principle that access to education should be based on the ability to learn, never on the ability to pay. And that's The Week in Holyrood from Caledonia Media. I'm Charles Fletcher. Join me again at the same time next week or at a time of your choosing on SoundCloud or Replay. Aikira. Online at k107.co.uk and on air at 107.